Hi, everybody. My name is Ember Kelly, and I am the Director of Religious Education here at the Fourth Universalist Society in the city of New York, where I'm actually calling in today from, as you can maybe tell by this beautiful stained glass that is somehow in the, my office room because my office was an add-on to the room. But I am so excited to get to be with you all tonight as part of our continuing In Conversation series where we bring in exciting new speakers to come and share a little bit about the work that they're doing and about things that are going on in the work that they're doing and the things that they study. Uh, and I am particularly excited to be to have the chance to invite and share the platform with an amazing friend of mine from seminary who went to seminary and traveled through uh, that rigorous <laughs> experience together at Chicago Theological Seminary. Uh, and so I am so excited to uh, introduce to you all, uh, Reverend Jason Carson Wilson. Uh, Reverend Jason, would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners today? Yeah, thank you so much, Ember, for the the invitation. I'm I'm so glad to be here. Uh, so I'm, like Ember said, I'm, I'm Reverend Jason Carson Wilson, and I am the uh, founding executive director of the Baird Rest and Liberation Initiative, a DC-based uh, faith-based uh, advocacy organization that is really focused on. Black and LGBTQIA, Black and POC uh, LGBTQIA liberation. One of just really was finding that um, our traditional LGBT, LGBTQ organizations, while fighting for liberation for LGBTQ people, um, struggled to recognize the challenges that are, that are faced by uh, LGBTQIA people of color and particularly because I I am an, a Black LGBTQI person, um, can really speak to the to the directly to the context from the context of, of Black LGBTQI people. I mean, so that that's what uh, inspired me to found that organization in April of 2018. And then I also serve as the Baird Rustin Fellow for Community Renewal Society, which is a United Church of Christ. Um, affiliated organization based in Chicago that focuses more on uh, state and local LGBTQ issues. So that's what I'm uh, leading there. But I also um, do federal advocacy of LGBTQ issues through BRLI. So Community Renewal Society and Baird Rest and Liberation Initiative have a connection uh, that we do that work with. And um, so beyond that, I'm a ordained United Church of Christ minister um, and my uh, after a, a career of, of journalism um, started uh, my seminary journey in, at CTS in, on September 3rd 2013 I still remember the exact date and day and the um, the feeling of walking through the doors and really walked through there thinking oh I'm going to be a, a a pastor and, and be assigned to church because I really didn't coming into seminary really didn't have an idea of like what does that look like um, but have always really known that I am called to social justice ministry but really didn't have any of the language for that and so CTS gave me all that language and lots of opportunities which I can speak to later to do social justice um, but then uh, that journey ended up leading me to take a job as a as the uh, Justice and Peace Policy Fellow for the United Church of Christ, a two-year fellowship that brought me to D.C. in uh, May of 
2016, and so I've been here ever since uh, doing federal uh, advocacy in various um, policy areas, um, but most recently uh, a lot of that has centered around LGBTQIA issues. So that's me. I mean, as, as someone who is also your Facebook friend, um, I'm always just amazed getting to see all the, the cool things, all these opportunities, like that fellowship, the things that you've gotten to plug into, like it just, it's really exciting stuff. And you kind of name it there that, you know, a lot of us went into seminary kind of expecting like very traditional, like, I'm going to go to seminary and then I'm going to just be just, 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 just a straight up normal pastor. Like, you know, that's all, that's really the only option, right? Um, and I, I feel really fortunate that Chicago Seminary, that they, that it, it expanded this idea of what ministry could be. I think the UCC has also uh, been part of that journey. I know in both of our lives, uh, but at CTS, we were like, Hey, there's, there's more possibilities. And I know that, that one of those was like this idea of being a, a public theologian, um, or maybe in other words, maybe like a, a theological activist, almost in a sense. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I think that that was a concept that I was first introduced to at, at CTS, which I now find practically applicable in life. Um, but that, that was the first time I ever heard of like, you can be a theologically informed activist, like you can, um, you can do ministry work and have it be activism too. And I just, I, I, my mind was blown at the time. Like, I think the, the year that I started was uh, right around the same time as the Ferguson uprising. And they had um, every, a couple of different speakers come in. And it was also the same summer as like uh, Baltimore, Baltimore uprising. And uh, so you had like literal, you had people who were supposed to come speak at this panel who were instead calling in and were driving to Baltimore. Uh, and, mm -hmm. you know, that just set such a good impression that, that, being religious, being involved in a faith community, being ordained, being a faith leader um, doesn't necessarily mean that you can't be involved and active out and out in the world. Would you like to maybe discuss, obviously, like, I feel like the work you're doing kind of qualifies as being a public theologian. Um, would you want to talk about a little bit about this faith-informed activism kind of work? I, I guess what the first thing I will say is, is that um, the idea that that it has become this this there's been this idea that uh, faith and activism is like this new kind of newfangled kind of thing, um, because what I've come to realize is that Jesus was a faith-based activist. And his ministry was a movement. I mean, I've, I've heard it called a movement, and I do agree with that, that, that Jesus' ministry was a movement. And I think what I what I'm have watched is Jesus' movement become Christianity. And I feel like they're the Jesus' ministry and movement is different from the institution that is now Christianity, particularly since it, um, this institution has uh, been used to create and sustain 
power um, for the powerful and not for the oppressed. And so I, uh, so I guess as I, as I say that, like I, I ponder how I've gone through um, dealing with this uh, institution we call Christianity. I was raised in a conservative evangelical church in downstate Illinois where um, it was predominantly white and I'm a biracial boy who was the first black grandchild born in a white family to a white mother. I don't know who my, my father is and, and, I, and I share all that for context. Um, that this church in many ways I felt it became a sanctuary, but I realized it, was a, it became a sanctuary because I could feel God's presence. But it was a space that was also problematic because of the, some of the people there who had, uh, frankly, racist ideas about black people and pushing the whole you know propaganda around black people and welfare, etc. And then eventually, um, their homophobia would come come into play because I. Uh, didn't come out till I was 27, but it was clear that I was different. Um, and so, I guess and that, that's just part of the experience. And then again, the other experiences were the, um, and particularly in this context, were the, um, the, the tra quote, traditional gender roles that, that they pushed around. So boys were expected to be ministers, girls were, were expected to be ministers' wives, because you know, they, um, and, and then also, obviously, the binary, uh, binary concept that, you know, non-binary was not a, not something that they could, could probably fathom today. Um, so, I guess all that experience for me um, living through that, eventually getting outed by the church and stepping away from the church um, for a while then ended up pushing me to I, I was, was always, I always loved writing telling stories so I got my journalism degree and I really remember, you know, saying I'm, I'm negotiating with God because we know that works about um, figuring out another way to do ministry. So I became a journalist and decided that's, that's how I was going to do that. And, and God made ways for that. And I think one of the, one of the biggest um, opportunities for social justice ministry for me and, and also kind of a some version of public theology that I had the first taste of, even though obviously I was in a secular, you know, space of a newspaper and I wasn't necessarily, so I wasn't, you know, proselytizing or anything of that nature. However, there was a situation where I, I was in a, a town called Pekin and there was a situation where there were, which is on the other side of the Illinois River from Peoria. So there was a situation where there were women of color who were struggling with uh, substance abuse, um, who were 
you know, financing that substance abuse through sex work. So these women were being targeted um, and murdered and then dumped in the county in which I was, their bodies were being dumped in the county I was covering. Now, the cop report of my colleague was just another black woman was killed and just basic reporting. And I just felt this call to humanize these women. I was okay, what, yes, this is how their life ended, but what, what were they like before? And ended up getting connected with uh, a lesbian couple, um, Reverend Carol Hoke and Reverend uh, Lauren Padgett, who I'm still friends with to this day. They and their UCC pastors, um, actually in, in my conference. Um, and so they ended up creating this sort of support group for the victims' families. There ended up being a total of seven fam victims. And so I went and interviewed each of the families as a group with them. Um, and this was before Black Lives Matter. Um, and so as I was doing it, I just felt this, I had this feeling that I couldn't really articulate. But I just knew that, um, and as much as I was, you know, doing my job as a journalist, I just felt like there was something more that um, that I was doing, and I was sort of feeling this call to do that, but I didn't know, okay, what do I do? How do I get there? And so that, so that was the first, I think, inkling that I was sort of called to the work that I'm doing now. And then I ended up moving to another newspaper, um, beginning attending the church, and they were preparing to become an open and affirming church in, in UCC speak. That is uh, the process that churches go through to, to officially declare that they're open to LGBTQ people. And so they decided to do that. And so once they did that, that's when God was like, okay, um, you've been avoiding this call for going on 30 years. Um, hello, stop. So the church that I was there essentially affirmed my call. Um, and so I began that journey. Um, but uh, so just began that journey and ended up at, at um, CTS. And, and I will say when I first started, um, first started down that journey towards ordained ministry, I, I was, one of my gifts is overthinking a lot of things. Like I have lots of gifts, but overthinking is one of them. And one of the things for me was, okay, I've committed to, to this ministry and I, and I don't want to have anything to, to get in, in the way of it. So I'm going to, Kind of just not do journalism anymore um, because I don't want to be in a situation where I think I'm this is going to be the backup in case I decide I don't like being in ministry. So I tried to get away from that, but what I realized at some point was that um, God allowed me to get that degree on purpose. That was the whole point. I mean, that even as I did this journalism degree because I thought I was trying to get out of ministry. The guy was just like, okay, that's cute. You can, I'll let you pretend like you're getting out of ministry. We'll, we'll, we'll go ahead and pretend that, that I'm going to let you do that. That's fine. 
but essentially what that what journalism was was just um giving me tools that i am now using in the in the ministry that i'm in um because uh journalism is really what so, so this public journalism uh, or public theology being a public theologian is essentially um taking elements of what I learned in journalism and melding those together with uh, theological reflection. And I will say one of the gifts of pub being a public theologian with a journalism degree is, is that uh, I've learned how to write in AP style, which means essentially when you write, when you the stories that you read in newspapers are written in AP style, the Associated Press. Um, and so for me, um, it's, uh, public theology sort of positions me in this, in this space where I can, um, have the best of both worlds of sharing theological reflections in ways that are most, hopefully most accessible to the most amount of people because I've noticed some individuals who don't necessarily have uh, my skills. Um, sometimes important theological reflections are obscured by arcane, archaic uh, language involving nine-syllable words. And sometimes there's a place for that. But also, if you're really trying to reach the most people, you also need to be able to distill that in a, in a, in a format. So I think that's, um, so that, that for me is what finally, I guess, as I, all that to say that, um, once I realized that, no, I'm not using my journalism skills, still using my journalism skills to avoid ministry. Once God helped me grasp that, it's really uh, put me in the space of being able to really develop my prophetic voice um, in the realm of, of public theology. And also, on top of that, I think the other um, good thing about this is that I'm adding diversity. Because we, there are a great many people with uh, prophetic voices who are people of color. I mean, uh, Tracy Blackman, uh, Naomi Washington Leapart, um, with whom I count as, as friends and mentors, um, Pamela Lightsey, uh, just a lot of a lot I could name, um, but. I feel like I bring a, a particular um, a particular perspective as a black gay uh, faith leader who has a one a commitment to interfaith engagement um, because I think as much as I identify um, as a follower of Jesus, um, I believe that everyone is 
a child of the Creator. And um, so I try to make sure that I don't let anything uh, separate me from someone else. So there's so many points in there that I want to uh, go off of. Um, but I think, you know, the way you talked about um, simplifying, because you, you do get a lot of people who do some, you know, whether through effort or through sheer luck, end up with uh, theological platforms, uh, especially in the age of social media, um, that, you know, suddenly uh, some account on TikTok or Twitter is suddenly known for being like the hip, cool place for, for theological takes. But that they don't have a desire for distilling it down into understandable language that makes sense to people outside of the community. And I know as a, as a religious educator, that that's something that I really uh, seek to do is to try and make this make sense to other people, like to, to be able to convey. And I think that so many people, I think we're probably going to talk more about this in the podcast that you and I are also recording. Uh, but that the theology is, up there with like philosophy and like the scary words, um, the, you know, sort of like the reason that Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone was changed to the Sorcerer's Stone. They figured Americans were too scared of that word. Um, and, you know, I think that people are scared of the idea of theology, but don't realize that they're doing it all the time. Uh, that, you know, thinking about these big questions of the meaning of life and existence and who we are and what our purpose is, that this is all doing theological work. So it, it feels like it's kind of natural that it moves into this sort of activism uh, work. I mean, so with you doing something like running the the Baird-Rustin uh, Liberation Initiative, um, like what do you feel like is maybe like the difference between being like a faith leader doing this sort of justice work versus just like a normal activist? Does that make question make sense? I think, um, how does it help bring a little bit more to the table, do you think? I think one of the things that it, that it does is, um, creating a different, uh, face of religion and spirituality and even Christianity. Um, that as a, again, as a black gay um, man living in America, in the United States, um, I realized that um, Christianity particularly the United States version of Christianity has been used to demoralize, dehumanize. Well, I mean, the United States version of, of Christianity um, justified the enslavement of my ancestors. Um, then once the Emancipation Proclamation was signed, which didn't emancipate anybody immediately, um, and once the um, reconstruction was derailed to uh, open the door to Jim Crow, 
again, um, Christi- uh, the United States version of Christianity helped justify the further dehumanization and demoralization of, of people of color. Um, and then we fast forward a couple de- several decades um, to then justify the dehumanization and demoralization of LGBTQI people and got so bad as to um, decide that people dying of AIDS deserve, deserve to die of AIDS because it was a that was God's punishment, which is, if I can use a theological term that won't upset anybody, that's bullshit. Um, so, uh, I guess for me, when I, all, that's all to say that, um, I, coming to this work as a faith leader, I think it's it's really not that different from being a quote normal activist. I think a, 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 a normal activist is, is coming from their own more. They have their moral center, and they and that they bring that to this work. And and from their moral center, like I need to be fighting injustice. For me, I, I have the same the same moral center as them. I I just also am compelled by uh, God to to make sure even when I'm tired of said bullshit and, and injustice that I continue to uh, work. And it's, so essentially it's the only difference between me and a quote normal activist is I've got a higher power that is giving me extra strength um, or extra patience anyway. Or yeah, extra patience and strength to do the work that I do. Because um, I, 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 I guess I want to be very clear because I think that's one of the issues outside of um, you know, dehumanizing, demoralizing black people, dehumanizing, demoralizing LGBTQ people, um, you know, uh, justifying patriarchy, sexism, etc. Like, I, I think those are all the issues that come with Christianity. But I think the other issue is, is that I also, um, within the context of being a faith leader within within Christianity, one of the things that I always am trying to be very, very cognizant of is that being a faith leader doesn't set me apart from other people or doesn't make me better than. And I think that's one of the other issues that um, that comes from, yes, the, the U.S. version of Christianity, but Christianity overall, because it has, in many ways, become a kind of this kingdom on earth that Jesus specifically said he wasn't trying to create. Meanwhile, they used his movement as like the foundation and scaffolding for this 
um, institution that has entirely too much power. Um, and so, so I guess I just say all that to say that um, there's really no difference between me and, and a normal activist. I just, I just pray at the beginning and the at the and at the end of a, you know, public action. I think prior to in my in my running away from the call times, um, that, that that part also resonated with me. Um, I did a lot of activism around trans issues, and it was, you know, a lot of the places where we ended up holding events or where we were able to really find support in community were churches. Churches can really serve as that that hub um, and that place of connection and that place of community building where we can begin to change lots of people's minds at once. Um, and I think, you know, one of the other things that we learned a lot about in seminary and that I still, you know, try and stay sort of up to date on as much as possible with my reading list um, uh, is the idea of liberation theology, of theology that's done specifically through this lens of, of trying to work towards the liberation of oppressed peoples. Um, would you say liberation theology is something that motivates you? And would you give maybe your definition of liberation theology? Yes, um, yes, it liberates me. I will say that I, up until I, even up until I, I uh, moved to this the second church that which the church that ended up affirming my call and starting that helping helping me start my UCC ordination journey, I was still in the space of feeling um, well I, I was in the space of being able to own my own my identity as a, as a gay man but then I still was struggling with well can I be a gay Christian um, and then also at some point it was can I be a, a black gay Christian And I will say that the, so I took the introduction to black faith and life with uh, Reverend Dr. Lee H. Butler Jr. And that class was a transformational experience. We read all kinds of, I mean, we studied all kinds of uh, black faith. It wasn't just Christian. I mean, essentially it was sort of um, black church history meets black history that I should have been taught in school. Or black U.S. history. And so it was just an amazing experience. And I will say that was, the, that was where I read The Cross and the Lynching Tree by James Cone. Um, and he wasn't there to sugarcoat. I mean, Dr. Cohn wasn't there to sugarcoat, and neither was Dr. Butler. And so, and I was coming into this class as a, as I said, as a biracial man who was born to a white family, raised around a white family. And I will say the reason that, that this, this experience was so um, amazing for me was that I'd come to the realization that I was struggling with the guilt from 
Yes, I've ex I've experienced a number of racist incidents, um, but I will say that I realized that I enjoyed what I will call white privilege by osmosis. Was it the same level as white people? <laughs> no, but there was a level of white privilege that I um, was afforded growing up around white people. Um, and then when I went into, uh, became an, a journalist, I was working, all the, the papers I worked in, I was the first black reporter in every, every paper. And they were all small white towns. But my membership in the media gave me a layer of white privilege. Because there were, um, experiences like I was in a, uh, one of the places I worked was an actual sundown town. Um, and I was, my job was to uh, cover county board meetings and school board meetings out in the middle of nowhere and then have to drive back to work and write, which generally would bring me back at like 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock. And I got stopped twice by the police. The only reason that, um, that they, they stopped nagging me was because my editor, my white editor, finally said something. Um, and so that's just just a, a, a snapshot of, of the white privilege I was afforded. Or, um, and I, I realized all of that when I got to seminary. And so, and I, and I think that that class in particular helped open my eyes to that and gave me space to sort of process that. I took, also took classes with um, Dr. Terrell, uh, Christian Ethics, um, Systematic Theology, but when, when I started Systematic Theology and reading uh, Dr. Cohn, Dr. Cohn and Dr. Um, Lightsey, it just really, um, just gave me language to articulate all sorts of things that I had been feeling but couldn't pinpoint or couldn't speak to. So it not, so it was a, um, so at first liberation theology gave me this sort of personal, um, personal strength and personal peace. Um, and so, that's what really drives me to do public theologies because I um, want to be in a space where I can share the same, um, well, maybe not the same, but but share a, a a prophetic perspective from my context, my own personal context, because I think that that is another. Um, another avenue that I can be helpful. Uh, because based on even some of, even as late as 2015, uh, 16, when I was working on my constructive theology, um, which are capstone at CTS for the MDiv program, um, it was really a struggle to find a lot of black gay, um, theologians that really 
speak to issues. I mean, we've got Dr. Lightsey, who is a great womanist, uh, lesbian womanist theologian. And there are, there are others, but... Um, But I think, uh, for me, um, liberation theology is really what um, is one of the things that really gives me that strength to continue to fight and do the work that I do and um, to create space for the oppressed and the marginalized. I think, you know, when I, when I started at, at CTS, it was something that really hit me as somebody who else who also grew up in the more evangelical, evangelical Midwest sort of world, which is a very specific type of theology that is definitely not liberation. It is very, you know, God's coming and going to punish everybody, or here's your ticket out of hell, maybe you're going to get raptured, you know, all these sorts of, of things. So when you get to like interact with liberation theology, where it's very much like, you know, God is on the side of the oppressed or in, you know, maybe non-Christian circles that the divine is on the side of the oppressed or just that the church should stand on the side of the oppressed, that our community should be on the side and that history is on the side of working for a better world for the oppressed. You know, all of these ideas are just really amazing to me as someone who had been you know, the only idea that I had of, of God, the divine, anything like that growing up was um, you're going to hell and if you, you better believe or else you'll have to just spend forever in punishment. And it's just such a different thing. And I think the other really beautiful thing, I, I took a few queer theology courses uh, and that was like getting to um, see how you could like use that lens to then look at these uh, scriptural stories and I now even, you know, apply those same sort of lenses to just other things that I read critically. Um, but like that you look for the queer happenings, that you look for um, issues around um, binaries when you're looking for maybe like a trans reading. Um, and it's really, um, it's a great skill to, to be able to come to learn, to be able to find meaning in the text that maybe even the original authors didn't intend, but that you can find that, that deeper liberatory meaning. And I've always found that really, really meaningful. Have you, so you mentioned like uh, uh, um, Dr. Cohn uh, and Crossing the Lynching Tree is like a, a, a huge uh, black liberation theology sort of text. Um, and you mentioned womanist theology and you, you know, so there's all these different kind of liberation theologies that are flowering out of this movement. Um, a, do you like, do you think, um, I think some people are often like worried, like, is this something I'm allowed to engage in as somebody not in that community? Um, but B, do you have recommendations for, for things for people to dive into to learn a little bit more about these kind of liberation the theologies? One, I don't, I, um, I don't think that, that one has to be in a particular community to be able to, um, and to learn from these theologies. So for example, the, uh, of my cohort who was in, um, there were a few people in my cohort that were in the class of, with me that were uh, three white people. I mean, they're all people that I'm still friends with to this day. Um, and they all 
we're transformed by that experience. So I, I don't believe that black theology is only for black black people or um, queer theology should be just for queer people. I think that that um, black theology, queer theology, um, theology from from theologians of other theologians. Of, theologians of color um, are all important because I think um, theology is also is another way of from those theologians is another way of learning about the experiences in the context of people of color. I think I mean I think not only do I think but I think it's the reality that that the root of racism and homophobia and sexism is ignorance. Now, am I saying that reading one, uh, you know, passage from, you know, feminist theology or womanist theology or, or black theology or queer theology is going to cure you of all your isms? Like, no, but I think it is a way of learning about a community um, that you may have struggled to connect with before. And it gives you um, insight into where they are. So for example, um, so I took, I took Queer Theologies with uh, Patrick Chang. And that for me was helpful because I understood like, I've seen, besides looking in the mirror, I've seen other black LGBTQ people, um, but I have ne had never necessarily, um, hadn't had the opportunity to interact with, uh, so for example, uh, some, someone of Asian descent. Um, and then Asian is, isn't necessarily too specific because there, there are different types of people who are of Asian descent who can be Korean, Chinese, so I don't want to want to make sure that I also recognize those different communities within that label. And so for me, um, being in that class, um, again, as we, we learned in seminary, that uh, your personal context also informs your theology. So to learn even as he you know, shared through his book, Rainbow Theology, and I can't remember, there was another book that he taught from, another one of his books he taught from. While, yes, he talked about like these different types of theologies, he still, at, at the core, was teaching from his context and shared his own personal story within the context of that. So I really appreciated learning um, from him um, and then, uh, you know, learning from Dr. Lightsey, um, because in as much as yes, she and I are both black people who are in the LGBTQI community, I still have male privilege. Um, and so learning from her context um, about that, um, 
is really important. So I guess what I what I say is that I think that it, exposing yourself to a variety of liberation theologies is very very important because it's essentially it's a gateway of um, exposing yourself to different cultures and perspectives or perspectives that are that are influenced by cultures and personal experiences that I think uh, in one way helps break down um, barriers that could keep us from seeing each other's humanity. When you named something that I really love about um, liberation theology, and that is that, um, especially growing up in that more evangelical, traditional theological world, you know, you're told that like theology is what's in the Bible and that's it. Um, and I love the beauty of getting to speak from our context to dream our dreams, to, to think about uh, what liberation looks like for us and what our lives have been like and letting that inform things. And that that's not a bad thing. Um, I think it's just a beautiful part of liberation theology. I suppose as a, as a final wrap-up question, and then also folks stay tuned for a podcast coming from us later this month. Um, as a final wrap-up question, what if, if we were in, a, if tomorrow we woke up and it was a fully liberated world, what, what is your vision for a liberated world? What does that, what does that look like? What is that dream that drives you? A liberated world to me is a space where, um, you're truly not judged by uh, what color you are, what you look like, how much you weigh, uh, your sexual orientation, your sexual identity, your gender identity, your gender expression, that you're just simply thought of as a, uh, if you are of faith, considered, creation of God just like anyone else. Um, if you're not of faith, you consider each other as a fellow human that are in a world where we're all able to live in harmony and peace. Where no one is begging for validation or basic affirmation or um, struggling to prove their worth. Where parents don't throw their kids away and where there aren't people living in tent cities. I think just basically my dream is
being in a world where we treat each other um, with dignity and respect and where everyone has enough and no one is worrying about where their next meal is coming from. Beautiful vision. Jason, it's been so wonderful to get to sit down with you. I'm excited to also be recording the podcast, uh, but thank you so much for, for joining Fourth Universalist tonight. It's, it's wonderful to have you. Thank you so much.